young man by the name of Kevin Steffen. In 1999, he was uh, working as a bat boy for his brother's Little League baseball team. And right before the game started, one of the players was warming up next to him and did not see Kevin and accidentally hit Kevin in the chest with his bat. Uh, Kevin fell to the ground, stopped breathing. Thankfully, there was a nurse there named Penny Brown. Her son played on that team, and she was able to administer CPR and save Kevin's life. Seven years later, Penny Brown is eating in a restaurant in Buffalo, New York, and she begins choking on her food. Uh, in her words, she said, the food wasn't going anywhere, and I totally couldn't breathe. I was, it was very frightening, she said. Customers began yelling for help. Uh, one of the workers in the restaurant ran out from the kitchen to administer CPR. He was a volunteer firefighter. He administered CPR. He saved her life, and that young man's name was Kevin Steffen. Uh, we should know that it pleases God to use people. It pleases God to use people. It does. And he uses people to prepare people to be used. It's very, very critical. I think sometimes we hear terms like ministry, and we think to ourselves, well, that's talking about someone else. I mean, that's not for me. Ministry, that's for pastors or the spiritual elite. That sounds very lofty. That sounds very specialized. That sounds like something for everybody and anybody else except me. But that is not true. God desires to use all of us. And if I could pass along some counsel that has served me extremely well over the years. If you really have a heart to say, well, God, I really, I mean, if you can use anybody, yeah, use me. If, and I'm willing, if, if you're able, well, he's able. If you're willing, he'll definitely use you. But, but let me just give you some counsel that has, I mean, it has served me very, very well. If you want to be used of God, it's very, very simple. Attach yourself to faithful people who God is using. You want God to use you. Attach yourself to faithful people who he's using, and God will use you. Years ago at the Kansas City Baptist Temple, and I'm sure at times I was probably the annoying little brother but Sam Miles and John Wright, you guys are seeing Pastor John Wright on Tuesday nights. If, if you go back and look at some of their photo albums when their kids were, were, were toddlers, you'll find me in a number of those pictures. I was always around. Wherever they were, I was. And I was watching, and I was learning, and I was getting trained, and, and it wasn't just me. There was a host of other men, too, that to this day God is using in a very, very great way. In this ministry portrait, we see a visual of a true ministry, of a true minister, sorry, which is someone who preaches the gospel. This is what we saw last week. Aren't you glad that someone preached the gospel to you? Aren't you glad that someone preached the gospel to you? One of the reasons that someone preached the gospel to you is so that you can preach the gospel to someone else. See, God used Penny Brown to save Kevin Steffen so that he could use Kevin Steffen to save Penny Brown. 
God uses people. He desires to use people. He wants to use you. He wants to use me, not because any of us are special or awesome or anything. See, here's the great thing about ministry. Uh, It's not for the elite, because guess what? There are no elites. It's not for the, none of us are special. Listen, one of the things that has helped me over the years, and it was very uh, freeing, if you would, was when I realized that I could never impress God. Right? I could never impress God. There's never a time where God says, wow. Man, you are, boy, you are really something. Woo, I've never seen that before. Where'd you learn that? No. God says, just just give me those who are willing and they'll be faithful and they'll be humble. God says, I can use them. This is one of the things that really caused the, 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 the spiritual leadership of the nation of Israel to struggle with the disciples because it's like, who are these ordinary men? These guys didn't go to our rabbinic schools. These, these guys aren't, who, who are these guys? How are they turning the world upside down, so to speak? They had just been with Jesus. There you go. A true minister also knows the hour. This is someone who sees the world and the times that we live in through the lens of Scripture. And because of that, they're sober-minded and they watch all things unto prayer. We continue this morning in verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 4. And this is the only verse that we will actually deal with today because, and listen, this verse, in terms of depth and richness and significance, I feel like I'm standing next to Mount Everest. This is... This, my, my mind, my brain is not big enough. I'm not sharp enough to, to do this justice. We'll try. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. I want you to focus very quickly on this word above. It means forefront. That refers to the leading or most important position or place. And I find that to be as interesting as it is clear. Because he's saying this issue of fervent charity is to be at the forefront of your mind, at the forefront of your heart. This is to be at the forefront of your lives. Why is that so interesting? Because what was happening at this time they were suffering and being persecuted unbelievably. And when we're going through things like that, what becomes the forefront for us? What becomes the leading focus? What becomes the leading position? What becomes at the forefront? It's that. It's, I'm hurting, I'm uncomfortable, I'm suffering, I'm afflicted. I've got this drama or this thing happening in my life, so that becomes at the forefront. Peter says to them, no. It's not your sufferings that belong at the forefront. No, it's above that, above all things. Can you imagine? 
I, I can't imagine as a father losing one of my children during that time. Maybe they were martyred, butchered, and, and that, my grief, my, 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 my mourning, my, my loss, that can't be at the forefront. Peter says there's something above that. This is what I'm saying. I, I, I can't do this justice. Because he said, above all things, this issue of fervent charity is very, very large. To, to put anything else at the forefront, that would be a lower position. No, the highest position is to have fervent charity among yourselves. That should be the focus. Now, today, this word charity is almost always replaced with love. But here's what you have to understand about this word. And this is one of the reasons that the King James translators left this word in our Bible so that you and I did not miss this. Charity is the highest expression of love. That's why. It's not that, it's not that charity is love. That's not completely true. What is completely and fully true is that charity is the highest expression of love. This is what we have to understand. Now, in a church like this, where there is, I mean, a zeal, there is a zeal to know the Bible. There is a zeal for Bible knowledge. This next point that we're about to embark on, it is urgent for you and I to hear this from the Lord. In the ministry portrait, we see that ministers persistently love the brethren. They persistently love the brethren. That word fervent, it means intent or, hang on, without ceasing. Intent or without ceasing. So someone who persistently loves the brethren does so without ceasing. That's charity. The love never stops. Brothers and sisters, I need you to hear this. Midtown Baptist Temple has a Bible institute, but we are not a Bible institute. Do you see that? We have a Bible institute, but we are not a Bible institute. Regardless of how often we warn against this for some, it's always going to come down to who knows the most Bible. And whoever knows the most Bible, somehow they win. So whoever proves themselves to be the smartest biblically, uh, somehow that puts them in a, I don't know, a higher or greater status. That might get you somewhere at Harvard, but it gets you nowhere with God. Brothers and sisters, some of the most knowledgeable people of the Word of God have split churches, have been serial adulterers, and have even renounced the faith. But oh my goodness, they knew the Word of God. 
Would you consider 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 2? And as we consider it, I want you to ask yourself this question. Is this my heart? Is this my heart? Paul said, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, would you say it with me? I am nothing. Given that churches at this time did not have 66 books in one volume called the Bible, okay? For a man to have the ability to stand up and deliver or convey direct revelation from God to God's people, that was something. For a man to have faith that, that, that could remove mountains, to have that kind of power, that kind of faith. Listen, to a church like Corinth, they would have been fascinated by that. They were very impressed by those kinds of things. I mean, it would have been eye-catching, eye-popping, but Paul was in no way boasting about those things. Why? Because those things were not the highest things. There was something that was and is above all those things because without charity, he said he was nothing. So while people would have been impressed and awestruck by, oh my goodness, did you hear what he said? And Did you see what he believed God for? Look at what happened. And wow, 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 wow. Paul says, slow down. Without charity, I'm nothing. Please. Spiritual gifting and Bible knowledge are not the bottom line. Spiritual gifting and Bible knowledge are not the bottom line. You can be very strong in the knowledge of Scripture, but if you are weak in charity, if you are weak in love, guess what that library of Scripture in your mind means? Nothing. You can be a walking commentary. You can fascinate people and blow them away with what you know about the Word of God, and, and, and they can be mesmerized by what you're able to unlock and show them in Scripture, and they're like, oh my goodness, I could have read that a hundred times and never seen that. Whoa, thank you. But if you don't have charity... As a New Yorker would say, I talked to my friend Bobby this week. I call him the king of queens. Forget about it. Okay? There are about 75 people who call Life Fellowship home, at least on paper, if you would. On a typical Sunday, we don't have that many. We have a number of people who are serving different areas in the church. And so... Um, but there's been some discussion about whether or not we need to formalize some kind of connections or hospitality structure here in Life Fellowship. And the intention behind that is very good. The heart behind it is we want to make sure that people are greeted and welcomed and taken care of and, and, and ministered and served and, and all of that. And I, I, I see it. 
It's a valid discussion, but here's my position. If life fellowship is a place where we're all given to fervent charity, have we not solved that? Have we not solved that? Listen, I can't get around to everyone. I can't get to every visitor. I can't. Just 50 people on a typical Sunday, there's, it's impossible for me to shake every hand, hug every neck, say good morning to everyone. And, but guess what? If this is a culture of fervent charity, I don't have to. I don't have to. Would you consider what Peter had to say about charity as it relates to spiritual growth? We focus a lot on spiritual growth, and that's a good thing. We should. And when we talk about spiritual growth, subconsciously, what many hear is, I need to learn more Bible. That's part of it. But there's another part of it, too. 2 Peter 1 and verse 5. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, would you say it with me? Charity. Charity. Listen, charity, charity is proof of spiritual growth and maturity. It's proof. It is. Praise the Lord on Tuesday nights, we're looking at relationships. That's been fantastic. But relationships are challenging, aren't they? Ask any married person. <laughs> Just ask us, relationships amongst ourselves. Are they not challenging at times? If Peter had to weigh in on our current series about relationships, here's what I think he would say. Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. I believe that's what he would say. And here's why that is so critical for our relationships. Look at the rest of the verse. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Now, this is very simple, but it's very, very, very critical. Eventually, sin touches every relationship. Is that not true? And I'm sorry to have to break that to some of you, but that is the truth. Name the relationship. Name it. Husband, wife, brother and brother in the Lord, sister and sister in the Lord, brother and sister in the Lord, sister and brother in the Lord. Name the relationship. At some point, sin is going to touch that relationship. At some point, people are going to let you down. It's the truth. And some of us are like, how in the world could they ever do that? I can't believe it. But you know what you miss when you say that? You know what you miss? What you miss is that someone has actually said that about you too at one point. How could you do that? How could they do that? And you were the they. (laughs) 
Brothers and sisters, we are all fallen people. And listen, your sin is as awful as my sin. And my sin is as awful as yours. It's all awful to God. It all, it's all nauseating. And listen, it's not that charity excuses the multitude of sins. It says that regardless of what you've done, my love for you will not cease. I will not stop loving you. See, if we're honest this morning, and listen, I am the, the old adage preaching to the choir, I'm the choir. Uh, this is a message, I think I may have told Mark, I can't remember, told somebody, maybe Lori, maybe both, I don't know. I'm almost 50, I forget these things. Like, maybe somebody else needs to teach this message today, because I don't want to touch this one. Man, this is tough. This is tough. You talk about looking in the mirror and the Holy Spirit, I mean, this is tough stuff. Because, do you know what we do? Often, when we get hurt, we press the pause button on our charity to others, don't we? You hurt me. You disappointed me. You let me down. Pause. And so now, whatever good we thought of them is history. Whenever we think about them, the only thing we can think about is what they did to us. That is all they amount to now. Who they are and what they're about, you can sum it up. And well, at the end of the day, I don't care what anybody else thinks about them. They did this to me. Wow. Okay, that hurts. That hurts because I'm telling the Holy Spirit had to deal with me because... I know how to retreat. I, I've pressed that pause button. I want to remind you of something we covered in 1 Peter chapter 3. You might remember it. It went like this. Spiritually mature people have learned how to get hurt well. They've learned how to get hurt well. See, this is something that the spiritually immature are unwilling to do. And this is what keeps them stuck. This is what keeps them or holds them back. When they get hurt, no, what do they do? They hold grudges. They become bitter. They are unwilling to forgive and move on. Nope. When you look at Christ, we see that he endured hurt well. Look at Luke 24, verse 36 in your notes. And as they thus spoke, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, his disciples, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. In John 20, we see this phrase, Peace be unto you, uh, from his disciples, uh, to his disciples after his resurrection. He says it three times in John 20. Now, why is that important? Peace be unto you. After he had resurrected. is because every one of them had hurt him. 
It wasn't just Peter and Judas Iscariot. No, the Bible says that all of them forsook him and fled. And so in Jewish culture, to greet someone with shalom or peace, let me tell you what that means. That, that, that literally means what you're saying is, is may you be full of well-being or may health and prosperity be upon you. So let me get this right. He's saying shalom or peace to these disciples. After they had all turned their backs on him. They'd all hurt him. Shalom, peace. So despite what they had done to him, that was his will toward them. Now, I need you to hear this. I need to hear this with exceptional clarity. So I'm going to ask you to, would you, would you, would you fine-tune your listening ear? as I'm doing the same thing, even though I know what I'm getting ready to say, but I need to make sure I hear it as well as you do. Listen, scorekeepers always lose big. Scorekeepers always lose big. They do. Speaking of charity, look at 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 7. Speaking of charity, beareth all things, would you underline this phrase, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Folks, that cuts deep. I'm chiseled. Even now I'm being chiseled. Believeth all things, listen, it means that Charity chooses to think and believe the best about others. It always gives others the benefit of the doubt. It chooses to think and believe the best about others, but that is not how scorekeepers think, right? No, I don't choose to believe and think the best about you. No, I, I, I've got a score sheet here. And, and this score sheet is telling me everything that I think I need to know about you. Some of us were to be honest. We think about the sins of others, things that they did 20, 30 years ago. And we still think about it. Yeah, they, they, yeah but 25 years ago, they, they did that. I mean, man, they, you keep detailed records on how others have failed God, how they failed you, and you will not let it go. Please, I beg you, Keeping score of the sins of others is anti-Christ-like. It's anti-Christ-like. Hebrews 8.12 
For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, listen, God chooses not to remember our sins and iniquities anymore. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, thank you, God. Can you imagine if he did? What if God chose to remember your sins and iniquities? You wouldn't have a chance. Neither would I. And here's how you know that you hold to an anti-Christ-like agenda. Is that in that agenda, this is what we do. We choose to remember the sins of others that God has chosen to forgive. God has forgiven them. I haven't. God may have let it go. God may not think on it. Do you understand how that wrecks your relationship with God? What does the Bible say? What's what's that rhetorical question that we reference often in Amos 3, verse 3? Can two walk together except they be agreed? So let me ask you, how can you walk with God when you are choosing to remember the sins of someone that he has chosen to forgive? How's that going to work? God says, I've forgiven them. God says, that's over. But you will not let it go. You're going to punish them. You're going to hold that against them. You're going to, how can you walk with God like that? You're not agreed. That's very dark, brothers and sisters. And for some, when it comes to what others have done to you, your memory is very long, isn't it? You replay it over and over and over. You will not let it go. And what they did to you was so awful that you have justified that they are unworthy of forgiveness. But somehow you were worthy of forgiveness. Because, after all, their sin is so much worse than yours. A man was having an argument with his wife. And he said to her, he said, I hate arguing with you because every time we argue, you get historical. Assuming that he misspoke, she took the opportunity to Show him that, see, you can't even get that right. What you really meant was hysterical. He said, no, I got it right. Historical, because every time we argue, you remind me of everything wrong I've ever done. That was supposed to be a little funny. <laughs> Sorry. Is it a little intense? No, I'm scared to laugh. <laughs> Come on, bro. What do you mean? You're a big guy. <laughs> 
Okay, was that a little funny? That wasn't funny? <laughs> Come on. Man. Oh, baby. I need help. <laughs> My jokes, well, they really never land anyway, but I thought that one would land. But that's not just wives. Husbands do the same thing. We can be historical too, can't we? Revelation 12, verse 10, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Now, from the book of Job, we know that Satan has access to come before the throne of God, but there is coming a day clearly where that will come to a complete end for sure. But when he approached God about Job, what did he do? He accused Job, didn't he? Does, does, does Job fear you for naught? In other words, he doesn't fear you purely and unselfishly. In Zechariah chapter 3, you, you find Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And who do you find standing to his right hand resisting him? The devil. Listen, this is critical. Jesus lives to make intercession for the brethren while the devil lives to accuse them. How about a contrast? The devil accuses the brethren day and night, constantly, constantly. The devil is not a man or a being of fervent charity. When you are given to fervent charity, that's not what you do. Let me leave you with this, because I think this is very, very critical. A critical spirit is of the devil. Do you know this? A critical spirit, do you know how you can tell when you have a critical spirit? Is because you constantly criticize everything. Nothing is ever good enough. Nothing is ever right. No one meets your standard. No one pleases you. No one meets your expectations. Something is constantly wrong all the time. You don't compliment others. You don't see the positives in others. All you see when you see people is you go to, well, that's wrong, and that's wrong, and that's wrong, and look at that, and they're messed up there, and they're messed up here, and that's not right, and that's not right. That is of the devil. That's evil. <laughs> that's an evil spirit. And this happens in marriage. There are some husbands where your wives, this is how they live. Okay, you ready? Uh, uh, uh. 
Because, boy, if one little thing is out of place, you're going you're gonna to go off. And there are some wives, you're the same way. You're always unhappy. Nothing's ever good enough. No matter what your husband does, it's just never enough. Brothers and sisters, that's not from God. That's not fervent charity. Fervent charity says, listen, sweetheart, (laughs) you can only be like me in that you're going to let me down at some point just like I'm going to let you down, no matter what. The one thing you will know is I'm going to smother that with fervent charity. If it kills me, I'm going to persistently love you. Now, before God, I can say that's my hard attitude toward my wife, but here's my problem. I'm not batting a thousand with everybody else when it comes to this. And that hurts because <laughs> God showed me. Lord, this is a tough, tough. But I thank you. You knew what we needed to hear, and I... Um, I thank you for what you've shown me. I thank you for what you revealed to me about where I'm lacking when it comes to persistently loving others. Lord, you know me better than I can ever know myself, and you have seen those times in my life where I have hit the pause button on my love to others because I was not elevating fervent charity above all things. So I thank you, and I trust you to continue working in me to bring me to the place, Lord, where I am living, 1 Peter 4, 8, completely. In Jesus' name, amen.